Well, another great day of discussion, and as always, I appreciate you being here for it. Great discussion moments ago talking about education, curriculum. We got into a deep dive into the math curriculum, which having people weigh in on that, retired teachers, parents, and of course, Ash Nereldon, who is my guest, owner of Mathnasium North Regina, uh, an organization that focuses on essentially tutoring and providing supports for students to improve and excel when it comes to math. So that was that was a great discussion there. Looking forward to this next hour's discussion because it deals with another subject that is near and dear to my heart. It's something that I had the opportunity to talk about. Sadly, I talked about it a lot as chief of police, and that's essentially addictions and the challenges that we have in our province. The Saskatchewan Coroner Service just put out a report showing 484 confirmed and suspected drug toxicity deaths in Saskatchewan last year. A new record. I hate using the word record when we're talking about people dying. The other thing that I that I often would talk about when we're talking about no matter what the stat is, is each one of those numbers represents a brother, a son, a daughter, a human being in our community and a family in a community that's ripped apart in this case because of substance use disorders, because they are prevalent. It's a big challenge. And so on January 18th, when we get word that the provincial government is no longer funding the provision of safe inhalation kits or even informational material on how to use drugs safely, I see this as a big step backwards. Tim McLeod, who's the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, said that providing tools and knowledge needed to consume illegal drugs doesn't help users recover. You can imagine harm reduction advocates sounding alarm bells on this, saying this is a major step backwards and is actually going to do more harm than good. And while I would argue, and and this is going to be the topic of conversation, we've got a couple of of experts who will be joining me here in just a second, but but I would argue that while we focus on recovery efforts, and I've got a, right here, I've got a, a package of news releases that have come out in the last couple of months where the provincial government opening two mental health and addiction group homes for youth, one in PA, one in Regina, the largest addictions treatment facility in Saskatchewan opening near Lumsden, Saskatoon's facility adding 14 more addiction treatment spaces. These are literally news releases that have come out in the, in the last month or two. Right, So the province is showing the ability to recognize we need to find ways to help people recover. I would argue that along with that, we have to keep people alive to get them to recovery. Harm reduction is not the one-stop fix for everybody. The theory of harm reduction is just that. It's reducing the amount of harm that drugs can do until you can get someone the help. That's the basic principle of harm reduction. It's an essential part. It's, you know, use the overused three-legged stool analogy. I don't care what analogy you want to use. Harm reduction has its place. It absolutely does. And so stepping backwards, not good. But you don't have to take my word for it as a retired cop. Daniel and Donna Hearn 
are my guests this morning. Joining me in studio, they're the hosts of a great podcast. If you get a chance to check it out, I would highly recommend it. Hard Knocks Talks is the name of the podcast. They're drug policy advocates who are very open about their lived experiences with substance use disorders, and they join me now in studio. Daniel and Donna, thanks so much for being in here today. Good morning, Evan. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. So, I, you know, I, I think to me, the ability to have this discussion with people who have lived experience is a rare but treasured opportunity. To me, the voice and the perspective that you bring is not one that many people will have. And the fact that you're willing to join me and talk about it, and then, of course, you know, continue to advocate on your podcast, I think is an important thing. So I'd like to start off and, and whichever one of you wants to start, but if you're, if you're comfortable, share a little bit about your journey in this topic. Sure. Uh, thanks, Evan. Um, I mean, for me, my, my journey, I spent 23 years in, in active addicted addiction here in Saskatchewan and 16 of those years, I was a, uh, uh, a journeyman welder, uh, working in Northern Saskatchewan, Northern Alberta, all over the place. And um, it, it came to a place where I became unemployable. Um, I, I could no longer work up north. I could no longer even hold down a job here in, in town, um, thanks in part to the behavior I was displaying as a result of uh, substance use. So something that, that really helped me come away from that, though, was when I was at a place where recovery was possible, I had a loved one that has been working in the addictions field here in Saskatchewan for 35 years. And it was almost like my willingness to recover didn't come until after the opportunity presented itself. And that is something that is almost non-existent in this province right now. Um, to, to access these services is, is very challenging. There's barriers in the way. Um, there's forms to fill out. There's, there's co- phone conversations that need to be have. Uh, oftentimes you need to have an address so they can find you. You need to have a phone so they can call you. And these are just basic things that most people take for granted, but so many just simply do not have. Mm-hmm. Donna, what, what about you? Uh, well, not unlike Dan, I mean, my, uh, substance use challenges began roughly, you know, 23 years. Um, and I had somehow, you know, got into a position despite my substance use challenges of uh, being a legal assistant for a number of years. I uh, had a very successful career. Uh, but not unlike Dan, uh, the, uh, substance use took over my life and I also became unemployable. Uh, I ended up at, at my worst, my so-called rock bottom, if you will, uh, spent 18 months on the streets of Saskatoon. I was using IV uh, substances and um, made multiple attempts to navigate the system to no avail. Um, it wasn't until I uh, became pregnant uh, that, uh, you know, community-based organizations and outreach workers surrounded me and walked with me, holding my hand, not telling me where to go and how to how to do the things, but just met me where I was at and, you know, made suggestions like, would this fit your needs and where you'd like to go in life? And through that sort of approach, which is also, as some would consider, harm reduction, I eventually managed to get out. So what would you, both of you talk about, you know, kind of that, the low point, you both use the word unemployable, you became unemployable, and then you talk about the supports that helped you round the corner and actually regain your life. What what was the turning point for, for each of you? Daniel, do you want to start? 
Sure. Uh, for me, the turning point, and, and it's kind of interesting. I, I love telling this story. Um, so the, the person that helped me the most come out of addiction in the very beginning was, was my mother. Uh, being an addictions counselor for, like I said before, 35 years here in Saskatchewan, she, she knew the names. She, she knew the language. She knew the phone numbers. She had some resources. And, and one day, um, when, when I was at my lowest, she showed up at my door and, and she said, you know what, Dan, let's go for lunch. And, um, when we went for lunch, she started scheming. She started saying things like, Dan, you need to go to, you know, go back up north and, and work and you need to get some stable housing, get your finances under control. And, and our son had been apprehended at by this point. And she said, you need to get access to your son. You need to work with the ministry. And, and I stopped her, I interrupted her. And, and even in the state of mind I was in, I looked at her and I said, mom, like, don't I need to get sober first? And it was like she went into autopilot and she said, yes. And she pulled out a form from her purse and the, the, the thing was completely filled out. It might, it may have even had a date on it, wow. but she knew, she knew that, um, for a person that was where I was at, um, I needed to have input into that decision. And if she would have said, Dan, you need to get sober, I very well may have dug my feet in. And that is a very effective harm reduction strategy in my point. And that is what is called meeting someone where they're at. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Donna? Uh, well, similarly, I mean, with the wraparound uh, supports that I had, they helped me complete forms. In fact, oftentimes completed the forms um, and helped me to understand my options, uh, explained things at sort of a more basic level. Because like once you start getting into system navigation, they're not unlike legalese. There is a very, very um, industry-specific language uh, to use in order to connect services appropriately and advocate as to why you deserve those services, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, so without people with the, that knowledge um, and, and that language, it becomes almost impossible to successfully navigate the system and connect those services. Daniel and Donna Hearn are my guests today. They're the hosts of a podcast called Hard Knocks Talks. Drug policy advocates who are very open about their lived experiences, which we've just been talking about when it comes to substance use disorders. We're going to take a break, but we're doing this for an hour. And so we've got our guests joining us. We're going to talk about their reaction to the recent provincial government decision to step back on harm reduction. Then we're going to get into the notion of decriminalization. I know they're wanting to talk about, about my suggestion that we need to go to some sort of secure treatment facilities. I have a suspicion. They don't agree, which is fine. At the end of the day, I I want to find a way in this province to stop people from dying. I don't care what we have to do or how we have to do it. We have to do it quick. And that's our discussion. We're coming back in just a second on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Welcome back and thanks so much for joining us for the discussion today. We've got Daniel and Donna Hearn joining me this morning in studio. Hosts of Hard Knocks Talks. It's a podcast that they host and they talk about drug policy they advocate for all kinds of things that can be done in the substance use disorder addiction and drug world to try and make our communities a safer and more healthy place and they join us this morning just recently uh here just before the break sharing their journey with substance use and i very much appreciate you being willing to do it it helps i think set the context of the discussion that we're going to have so you obviously are well aware of this decision by the provincial government to no longer provide safe inhalation kits and instructions to drug users on how to safely consume drugs. I'm assuming you see this as a very bad step backwards. 
Yeah, I would say um, I was quite surprised to hear it uh, happen so so abruptly and, and right on the heels of, of such promising announcements of more uh, treatment services coming to Saskatchewan. Um, and I agree with the statements you were making in, in your opening, talking about how it is such a big step back. Um, I, I, I don't see any logic in it, especially with such solid research in place, talking about um, HIV transmission and hep C and, 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 and other other problems that are, are transmitted through uh, through illicit drug using supplies. Was was uh, harm reduction, Donna, was that important in your life when you were going through your challenges? Well, interestingly enough, uh, at my time, uh, needle exchange was not really prevalent. And it was actually what little there was was on the one-to-one approach. And I can tell you firsthand that that does not work. You end up with people carrying multiple, you know, dirties around or just disposing of them in the garbage or wherever. Um, So, you know, I, I found that it was fraught with barriers for it to be an effective approach. Right. You know, you, it's interesting you bring that up. I spent a lot of time at a few different places. We have a friendship center in Regina that, uh, was, was part of providing harm reduction services. There's, there's a number actually in the community of Regina. And when I was chief, I also spent time at AIDS program South Sask. So they have a needle exchange program there. And often you would see someone come in and say, I need, you know, 50 needles. I don't have any to give you. And, and never once did I see them turned away. I mean, each and every time they were they were given the clean needles, there was a bit of a back and forth understanding of a good way to dispose of them. Many times they'd have their own sharps container that they would dispose of them. But, you know, what happens is we hear the horror stories of of people finding them in a playground, people finding mm-hmm. them in back alleys, which we I think we can all agree is not good for community safety. Mm-hmm. A- at the end of the day, how do we balance this out? I'm, I'm not really at the point where I'm taking texts and calls, but I do have one here from Sean in North Battleford that says, with the increase of overdoses, how can we say that harm reduction is working? To me, it doesn't sound like it is. Why do we keep throwing money at something that isn't working? Do, you, do you, mm. either of you have a, have a thought on that? Well, before we get into that, I'd just like to address, the, like outside of the community safety um, issue, which of course is is substantial and at the forefront of everything, I, I think it's important to consider the personal harm that that uh, is is occurring when people don't have access to clean supplies. Like in particular, I'm referring to needle exchange, um, and and as it was pointed out by Dr. Uh, Barb Fornsler and Dr. Colleen Dell on Dan's show, uh, you have an increased, uh, you know prevalence of people sharing supplies, which then, of course, is the uh, problem of, of spreading uh, communicable diseases. Um, but then when you look at the personal impacts, like you have more of collapsed veins, you have more of, um, you know, just, I'll just refer to it as personal injury to keep it uh, uh, keep it on the lighter side PG. of PG. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, you know, there's multiple layers to why these services are so important because when you start to look at the, the bigger picture and the cost to the healthcare system for treating folks with abscesses and different things of that nature, as well as the cost of treating people with communicable diseases, it's, I, I mean, it's uh, astronomical. You're looking at it 
from a cost benefit analysis saying yes. because I can't imagine I don't know the budget line for the government when it comes to you know providing safe inhalation kits and some pamphlets on yeah. you know safe drug use but it it can't be in the scheme of the provincial budget it can't be a big number and oh, so and you're, you're talking about that cost benefit analysis and and I I am actually addressing that today mostly because that was the approach that they took in the news release mm-hmm, right yeah and to, to speak to our listeners comment, um, the, the topic of, of today and the reason why we're here is, is, is not necessarily to, of course, we want to address the overdose crisis. Of course, mm-hmm. we want that. But, um, in, on the topic of, uh, clean supplies, um, that is not necessarily to address the overdose crisis as much as it is to address the communicable, communicable disease problems that we have with using supplies that aren't clean and the financial ramifications that come to our healthcare system as a result. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned it off the start. It's it, to me, harm reduction isn't the be all end all. You can't have a system that is attempting to help with the drug challenges that we have that is just harm reduction. Right. You, mm-hmm. you can't. And, and and I've said it. And Daniel, you made it made me happy to hear you say it. I feel like we've had some momentum in the last couple of months where we're seeing and hearing announcements from the province in terms of funding when it comes yes. to harm reduction or sorry, to uh, safe spaces for treatments. Um, yes. And even the, the latest one with regard to this large addiction treatment facility in Saskatchewan opening near Lumsden. Um, I was I was happy to see that they're looking at a facility that provides treatment up to 16 weeks because we know there's lots of places that provide you a one-week program or at best 28 days Mm -hmm. Uh, but boy I'll tell you when we can start stepping into a facility that provides that type of of sustained treatment option for people in our province I think those are good things so you know Mm -hmm. I'm a person that pats the province on the back and I said okay we're moving in the right direction and then this yeah, yeah. Which, and, and I wanted, and I wanted to, to, sorry to, to step in yeah. there, but, um, I, I, I wanted to also, like, I was going to offer accolades to, to the province for, mm-hmm. for taking these steps. And I did have, uh, so EHN, Edgewood Health Network, is the organization that's going to be overseeing, uh, the, the 60 beds in, in near London in there. And, and of course, more coming in, into the future. But, um, I had their, uh, director of government relations, Jamie Miley, and their, Vice President of uh, National Operations, Christina Bastow, uh, on the show just this past week. In fact, the episode just dropped on the YouTube and Apple podcast. Um, and they, I really liked a lot of what they were saying as far as um, reducing ac- reducing barriers to access, mm-hmm. um, helping people. <clears throat> you know, like if someone calls in and they don't have an address or if they can't fill out a form, they don't have the wherewithal that there's assistance there for that to get them into treatment. But not only that, they were really expressing their interest in effective aftercare strategies as well and, and very much evidence-based and client-centered care. And I mean, it all sounds really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am going to just, we need to take a quick break. You guys are with us right up until, uh, I hope you're with us till 11 o'clock uh, because <laughs> there's you. so much more to talk about. And uh, we are going to open it up for some calls and texts as well. So uh, if you want to participate in this conversation, one 332 8255 The notion of people need to be willing to help themselves. I want to get your opinions on that. We'll be back with Daniel and Donna Hearn right here on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Well, thanks so much for joining us on this Tuesday morning. A nice Tuesday morning, too. Weather is continuing to cooperate. In fact, I think it's doing more than that. It's It's given us a forecast that we can look forward to in this province. Bits and pieces of snow 
and some nice mild temperatures. Not a bad thing at all. We're talking harm reduction this morning in the light of the fact that the province recently made an announcement that they would no longer be providing safe inhalation kits, no longer providing instructional materials on how to safely consume drugs to people that suffer with a substance use disorder, and even making changes to the needle exchange program that you basically bring in the dirty needle before you get a clean one in return. And so lots of people weighing in on this. A couple of people that are experts this morning joining me, Daniel Hearn, uh, sorry, Daniel Hearn and Donya Gilchrist, and they are both drug policy advocates. They have lived experience in this world, which gives them a, a level of expertise that many don't have. Also, you can catch them on a regular basis on Hard Knocks Talks, a podcast that is uh, doing great things when it comes to educating people on some of the challenges to do with drugs some of the solutions that we have out there to work with. And so I'm curious to know, uh, and Daniel, I'll throw this to you first. What do you think the solution is? When we're talking about the current addiction problem, the overdose crisis that we have, I know this is a big question, but but mm-hmm. what is part of the solution? Well, I think one of the biggest uh, solutions uh, as far as having conversation goes is to stop polarizing uh, the two the two sides for back, lack of a better word harm reduction versus treatment versus abstinence it shouldn't be one or the other it should be both there should be a continuum of care that helps people reach a place of stability helps them move into a place where they can become productive in their lives and then supports them when they've found these new skills mm-hmm. donna donna is there anything you can point to that you think we are doing in this province and it's working we just have to not only keep doing it but maybe find ways to expand it well, I think, you know, along the lines of like what Dan was saying, it's the multifaceted approach um, because there is no one simple answer to this problem. I mean, it's so nuanced uh, that we have to basically try every possible modality and avenue in order to make sure that, first of all, there's that pre-care. Uh, so make sure that people stay alive and well enough to get to treatment. And then there's that treatment component. And then there's that aftercare or wraparound services after the fact. So... Um, it's, it's a very, like you said at the beginning, they're a very challenging question to answer. Right. Now, maybe, can I just jump in quickly sure. here? Um, now when, when Donna says to get to treatment, now let's, let's take a moment and, re- and, and consider that Donna never went to treatment. That's Donna true. never went to detox. So I think like stabilizing people until they find a path to wellness that works for them yeah. is something that is important and right. not, not, not trying to develop a very rigid and specific, um, image of what recovery should look like in Saskatchewan as far as being only abstinence-based mm-hmm. or, or only harm-reducing strategies. Okay. Thank so you for clarifying that, Dan. On that, on that topic, we, we've got texts and calls coming in, and I do want to try and get a couple of them on the air. The phone lines are open for you at one 332 8255 Dale texted in saying, My dad told me 50 years ago that you can't help someone who won't help themselves. I would like to know how many dollars are used in a year on naloxone lots or kits and how many people are treated with them you know more than once that money could be going to help people who it would benefit so before you before you answer that and and kind of along those lines i i want to talk about this notion of secure treatment i i've talked about this on the air i talked about it actually it was very controversial apparently my last two weeks as chief of police in regina i said look 
We're watching people in our community who, when they have the, the supports, and you both talked about great examples of, of supports, whether it was family, community-based organization, uh, experts in harm reduction, there's a variety of them in, in our province, that those supports were the catalyst to help them get help. I believe that we have people in our province that suffer with a serious substance use disorder that are in a in a zombie-like state and can't ever get themselves to a place where they're stabilized enough that they can see what they need and what they want. That that, that because I believe that they in the, in their essence want to get healthy but but can't find a way to get there. That's mm-hmm. why I think secure treatment might be an example for some people. Do you disagree? You know, uh, and I think you thought I was going to disagree. I did think I, that, yes. You did think that, I know, yeah. I was talking to the your producer before the show, and, and she was like, it's good to have a different perspective. And I'm like, I'm not sure how completely different it is. Now, I, I can't disagree with you that there are people who are lost in this disorder and are at a place where they are simply incapable of making positive decisions for themselves. Right. You know, I, I get that. So do I think coercion has a place on our on our uh, spectrum of care? I have to say it does. But where my concern comes in is the administration of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, is that officer discretion? You know, and are we going to begin to see an overrepresentation of certain uh, demographics due to that discretion? Right. You know, um, and, and Donna was talking to me a little bit before the show about um, um, referencing it to like the 60s scoop where um, they went into communities and started taking kids and saying, we're here to help. We're here to help. So if this discretion is given to officers, is there just going to be a mass exodus off the streets right. of all of these people that that our government figures ought to be uh, dried out well then and then what happens yeah that's an interesting point because in my view and i and i have no idea how this looks but i actually would love to see a system where police aren't even involved in it i I, I agree i i don't think i mean generally speaking the drug issue in our province is a health issue it's it's it could be in some cases a mental health issue a health issue it's you know, I, I've said this, I can't even tell you how many times I've said putting handcuffs on a person with an addiction doesn't unaddict them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help them get healthy. It, and you can't punish the trauma out of people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, you know, to me, the role of policing when it comes to the drug problem is trying to prevent illicit drugs from being brought in and sold into our communities. Mm-hmm. Now, I just talked to a group of grade 12 students in their Law 30 class in uh, Greenall School in Belgoni last week, and I said... If you have a person who suffers with an addiction, and both of you are in a much better position to talk to this than me, but if if you have a person who has a substance use disorder and you take away the substance that they use, they will find another substance. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You're not taking away the problem. You're taking away their solution to the problem. Right. Yeah. And creating more problems in the fallout of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got a call. I've got a couple calls waiting here, and I want to get to them. I'm going to start with Mel in Saskatoon. Thanks so much for calling in, Mel. What's your thought on this topic of of uh, the needle exchange on on the topic of harm reduction, Mel? Well, you know, um, thanks for taking my call, Evan. Um, you know, needle exchange. There's always going to be drug addicts. It doesn't matter where they um, where they get their needles from, but they need. I think they need an exchange because um, you know, if they don't have a place that they can exchange needles, they're going to have to get them off of somebody else. And I think that um, by giving them some place that they can get clean needles, it's a lot cheaper than to treat somebody that doesn't have a uh, disease than somebody that does have a disease. 
know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, Preach it. Um, yep. You know, if somebody has a disease, we have to treat them. We have to give medications. We have to hospitalize them, and that's expensive. If we mm-hmm. give them pipes or um, needles, it's a lot cheaper. Mel, you I know. think you're saying that's Donna. You were saying almost that exact thing earlier in the in the show. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. I have a statistic here I can share. Uh, there was a study done in Regina, published in 2021, that found that the average yearly cost of treating infectious uh, infections as a result of injection was like over three million dollars. And in that same year, harm reduction supplies cost five hundred thousand dollars for the entire province. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty telling stats. Daniel Hearn and Donna Gilchrist are my guests. By the way, Daniel, I heard you say preach it when Mel was talking. That's such yeah. a podcaster thing to say. I know. A radio, I don't, I don't sound cool if I say that to a caller. I don't get to say preach it to people. <laughs> I want to go to another call. I've got Marv in Regina. Marv, thanks so much for calling in. What's your thoughts on this topic of harm reduction? Well, uh, my name's Marv Zaner, and uh, I ran a harm reduction program uh, Parliament Methadone, and uh, later it was called Regina Recovery Center for 22 years. Mm. I just wanted to uh, put in my two cents about the success rate in the harm reduction in the met- specifically methadone program. Uh, you know, we supported the needle exchange big time, uh, like the previous caller, you know, the, uh, the cost of treating diseases that are spread through needle use intravenous drug use uh, is far greater than any of the harm reduction costs that they've been uh, using over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I support the safe injection site, uh, all these things, but the, the success rate in my clinic was a thousand times greater than uh, uh, prior to going to the harm reduction clinic. I worked in a traditional treatment center for four years, right? and the success rate there was just Terrible, horrible, absolutely. So it speaks. It speaks to the the benefits of harm reduction. And you know, I think I want to go back to that that text that came in earlier, uh, Donna. That that said, you know, we we have harm reduction now in the province, and yet we're seeing overdoses at a rate like we've never seen before. Does that speak to harm reductions not working, or does it show us that without harm reduction, the number would be crippling? So I would say the latter. I, I think there's some confusion here in this, Well, though. there is that, but I, I think that without uh, safe... Uh, regulated Regulated supply. supplies, um, you know, the potential for overdoses might be higher because we would not have facilities like Prairie Harm Reduction where people can, you know, test their supplies or use in a safe space where they're monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, getting back to the impact on, on the healthcare system um, and, and people in that sort of pre-treatment phase, if we if we can call it that, is that when people are accessing, uh, you know, organizations that are providing those supplies, they're also interacting with social workers and medical professionals and, and, and different, uh, you know, service providers that could potentially plant that seed of right. a better way to live. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like if we're, we are investing a little bit in harm reduction, I, as far as I know, we do not have a regulated supply to available to anyone in, in any capacity in this province right now. So um, the things that we could do to mitigate the overdose crisis are not really being practiced in Saskatchewan right now anyway. Anyways, mm-hmm. of course we are, uh, we do have access to some safe housing. We do have access to certain things that are, that could mitigate someone's harms and bring them on a path to a safer life. But as far as like what we're investing 
investing in harm reduction in Saskatchewan right now. I'm not surprised we're not seeing a huge difference in overdose deaths. Mm -hmm. The podcast is called Hard Knocks Talks. You'll hear Daniel Hearn on there. You'll hear Donna Gilchrist on there, both drug policy advocates. And uh, joining us today, we have to take one more quick break. We are going to come back and wrap up this discussion and uh, lean into uh, decriminalization as a topic when we come back on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. You know, this always happens on topics like this that are that are interesting, are important to dig into. The time flies by, and we had an hour set aside talking with our guests, Daniel Hearn and Donna Gilchrist today, a couple of drug policy advocates. They have lived experience and then lots of advocacy work. In fact, you can check them out on Hard Knocks Talks podcast. Uh, they are the guests that I've, I've been enjoying the conversation with the last hour. And thank you to everyone that has texted and called in. Before we go, I've got a text here. Would greatly appreciate your thoughts, suggestions, and opinions on helping a family member who's gone to treatment three times and continues to relapse. Alcohol is the prevalent substance. Daniel? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I can only speak as to what worked for me. And, and likewise with Donna can only speak what worked for her. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I had the option to have uh, extensive aftercare when I got out of treatment. Um, treatment is not the answer. Uh, 28 days is is not enough to construct a new life and, and to learn a whole new set of skills and to have a whole new out, outlook on life, uh, particularly if, if it's back to the same place you go when you get out with, with no supports in any capacity. So if I could offer any insight, it would simply be to, to, to look at what's going wrong. Um, if, if something is obviously something is not clicking uh, and, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not an addictions professional. This is just what I can offer for insights is that there needs to be something more than specifically just going to treatment, coming home and then getting on with life mm-hmm. back in that same environment. We hear about that uh, time and time again. Um, and, and often people that find themselves incarcerated um, will come out and face the very same challenges, right? And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not saying incarceration and addictions are the same, but when it comes to finding a healthy step and, and path forward, often it's that same environment that causes you to slump back into some of those old habits. Mm-hmm. And if we if we want to talk about being uh, released from from prison or or any case that that is another big uh, bone of contention that I have is is the resources that are made available to people who are getting out. You know, you get released at five o'clock on a Friday with nowhere to go and no resources and no ID and no health card and no nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what is expected to happen uh, in in that situation, right? right? Yep. Well, this is this has been a great talk. We uh, unfortunately are are at the end of our time. We didn't get into decriminalization, but what that means uh, to me and hopefully Daniel and Donna to you is that we have to have you come back. Um, <laughs> we we talk, you know, with government officials. We talk with community based members. We talk with uh, people in all different walks of life that that focus on. Um, health and, and especially on things that we can do when it comes to substance use disorders and addictions. Having that lived experience lens on this is an important one. And I think, and I've got about 20 seconds, but, uh, either one of you jump in on the importance of involving that voice in these discussions. 
Uh, I think it's integral, um, and I think it's important to educate the voices of lived experience who have come out the other side and, and talk a little bit about language and how to represent on social media and at decision-making tables and things like that. And if you want to learn a little bit more about that and about what we've talked about today, I've just dropped an episode with Dr. Barb Fornsler and Dr. Colleen Dell on the recent Sask party decision to, to defund harm reduction. Check it out on YouTube. Um, thanks for having us, yeah. Evan. I, yes, I really appreciate so it. Another piece of language. Uh, podcasters drop episodes. I, I've never been able to say that. <laughs> I've never said, oh, I just dropped another episode on you, Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, check it out. Hard Knocks Talks is the podcast. Daniel Hearn, Donna Gilchrist, my guest. Thanks so much for joining us on this very meaningful discussion right here on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.